we got bombarded by pharma asking for patient data about that population. And at the beginning, we started running surveys and that was very successful. And it helped have data for trial design, like how many seizures a month they have on average, uh, what type of drugs the patients are taking. But we thought, how about we do something that would allow us to track the patient, how they look, not just as a picture, which is one time, but as a movie. That was Anna Mingarance, the founder and CEO of Singularity Bio and scientific advisor for the Lulu Foundation. Before that, Anna was scientific director for the Dravet Syndrome Foundation in Spain. Anna sat down with us to discuss her many years of experience using real-world data to support biopharma research and engage patients in drug development. Hello, and welcome to Real Talk, Real World Data the Pulse InfoFrame podcast highlighting the incredible potential of registries, natural history studies, and other real-world data. I am your host, Joshua Henderson, and on this podcast, we meet with patients and patient advocates, industry, and researchers to discuss their unique perspectives on the value, the challenges, and the impact of real-world data. Let's jump right in. Well, Anna, it is a pleasure to have you here on Real Talk, Real World Data. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Now, to kick things off, I'd like to talk about your experience with registries and real world data and some of your lessons learned, both positive and negative, from, from many years in this space as it relates to either the design of those registries or, you know, their management. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let me tell you the story of how I submitted the first patient registry to the EMA for qualification as a methodology, because regulators have a process, just like when you develop a biomarker or a clinical medical measure that you can submit for endorsement for acceptability to be used in clinical trials. And I happened to submit a registry that was back in 2016, I was working with a Spanish Dravet Syndrome Foundation, and Dravet Syndrome, this is a rare genetic form of epilepsy, was becoming very, very popular. So we got bombarded by pharma asking for patient data about that population. And at the beginning, we started running surveys, and that was very successful. And it helped have data for trial design, like how many seizures a month they have on average, uh, what type of drugs the patients are taking. But we thought, how about we do something that would allow us to track the patient, how they look, not just as a picture, which is one time, but as a movie. And we came up with the idea of a registry. It's more like a patient data portal where patients would own their data and they could then choose to share it with many studies. And the important part for us was that the data would be collected over time. It would follow the patients, so the movie instead of the picture. And we could do that because the president of that patient group was a computer scientist, the CEO was a clinician, I was a scientist, I was the chief scientist. So we had a great team and we did one. And we so, so it was focused around Dravet syndrome with the purpose of collecting patient data, real world, to be able to use that in the context of clinical trials to help design or interpret data. And in 2016, we submitted that to the regulators for qualification. 
for capture of patient reported outcomes. So I got to write the first regulatory submission of a patient data portal. And uh, it ended up a bit bittersweet because they gave us a good letter of support, but for them to approve it, we needed to use it in clinical trials. And pharma was not willing to use it unless we had an endorsement from the EMA. So the project ended up dying, and I'll tell you in a minute why it died. But that's part of my early experience with real-world data and registries. What I've done a lot with patient groups is surveys. We've done those with Dravet syndrome and CDKL5 deficiency disorder and other rare epilepsy. We also did it in the context of a PFDD meeting to submit it for FDA. It worked quite well. And now in CDKL5 deficiency, we have a registry. This is a proper one built by Pulse InfoFrame that just launched in many languages. So that's very important and also allows to connect with many studies. That's very important. But through all of this, I want to give you those lessons learned that you asked me. I think the weakest points uh, when you try to do one of these efforts are to one, business model, and two, user retention. So the main one I've seen, the main problem is the business model. How are you going to finance this over time? Pharma wants it built and pay for the data, but who's going to build that? That's a big problem. Usually from the patient organizations, we don't have that funding, and that's what kills many of these efforts. And that second aspect is user retention is also important. We wanted this longitudinal value, but for users to come back and not just fill in this one day, we need to add value. And what we learn is that the main value that families saw, because these are kids with disabilities, is usually their parents filling in the, the registry, is to be able to compare their child with others. Compare, for example, the drugs they're taking and the dose they're taking, all their symptoms. And probably the second value is the ability to export nice graphs, summaries that they can share with their doctor. But um, those are the main incentives. So I think what's important for this type of effort, in my experience, is uh, main ones, sustainability, a business model for how to fund it. Second, this return for tangible value to the patients. And I would advise the tactics of making sure it's in many languages so you can get many patients. This is particularly important in rare diseases because they are all over the place. And to have some form of GUID, this global unique identifier, so you can really connect with many studies and not overburden the patients. So yeah, long answer, but <laughs> a lot of learnings. <laughs> oh, certainly. So you talked about using surveys, but beyond that, I think the, the approach that you described really speaks to putting patients at the center of that data effort. What is your perspective on really the value and the importance of the patient voice and, and patient engagement in the drug development process? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, la last week, I gave a talk at a patient engagement conference, and they asked me to speak about how we will look in 2030. And I think that the entire world is moving in the direction of decentralized, user-centric, user empowerment. We see that with Web3. We see that with encyclopedias moving to Wikipedia. I can see that also happening with the patient voice and, and patient engagement. Uh, we already see that a lot. Regulators are requesting more and more the patient voice. But what I think is still... A lot of this still falls on the patient organizations and foundations to come up with all of this. And the value they have is so much more than just the voice. Uh, my experience working with patient groups as a scientist is we drive a lot of the early science through funding and annual meetings. We can do clinical research tools, fund the key experiments. There is clinical research. Here's where registries, natural history study comes into place. A lot of regulatory engagement, also 
prepare the community so that trials happen. So I think it goes beyond the patient voice and engagement. I think that where this is all going is towards patient leadership in transforming the research field. So that pharma only needs to plug the their drugs into this, but it's quite difficult to do. I work with very strong patient foundations. I think as we move towards the future, we will see this uh, more across the place, not just a few privileged foundations. And I think we'll see patient groups getting more professionalized, having scientists like me working in-house, uh, clinicians, and also support of other organizations around to help build those registries and those big efforts. And what I hope to see that will help bring the patient voice and patient engagement strong into drug development process is more a society contract like it happened with COVID where we decide that things have to be done differently. And in this case, we decide that patient voice and patient foundations need to really be at the center. As I said, as the entire world is going towards this user-centric, user empowerment direction. Yeah. That's great. And, and certainly would agree at Pulse that you know, the value of the patient voice is critical, but also perhaps kind of under underappreciated um, today, uh, you know, across drug development and the entire continuum of drug development. Um, yeah. But, you know, sort of particularly in the context and opportunities around real world data, you know, do, do you have any thoughts specifically around the 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 role of real world data in helping elevate the patient voice. Yeah, well, only the patient or the caregiver in some diseases knows what it is to live in the skin of someone with a disease. So that's why patient voice is so important. But every case is different. These are all individual people. So I think the value of real world data in elevating that voice is because it has two main benefits to make that experience more powerful. One is that it goes beyond the story of one patient. It really gives you a view of the entire population with all of the diversity. So it's, it's better data. But second, real world data is quantitative and that allows us to project that into medical scales and other forms of assessments, for example, to determine if clinical meaningfulness. So that's why our own experience with surveys was also so impactful because it really captures and supports the patient voice. And I think that regulators on pharma are used to science data. And so again, having data to back up the testimonies is so much more powerful, is the bridge between anecdote and science. So I think you've got such a unique breadth of experience, both within advocacy and patient organizations and within sort of the biotech pharma space. Can you talk, I mean, we've, we've covered a bit around the, the perspective from patient advocacy groups, but how might that differ from the approach that pharma takes when looking mm. at uh, real world data and, and the and creation of observational studies and and registries and I'm particularly interested in your thoughts around how how greater collaboration can occur to to drive even more value um, for for these patient communities. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I really believe that it is important that this type of study is led from the community, from a non-commercial party, um, so that we can then use those registries or studies to support the progress of the entire field, not just support one program. 
Uh, also, so that we can better mobilize the community. I was telling you that user retention is a problem and you get a lot more if it comes from the community. Also to ensure sustainability beyond one pharma company that might deprioritize the project if they initiate the registry and abandon. And also to make sure that all the companies can have access and we don't need to end up with multiple studies. Uh, this is very important. It, it's essentially about what we consider pre-competitive and therefore subject to collaborations versus what we consider competitive. And pharma companies tend to see patient data as competitive, and that was a surprise to me. So I'd like to share with you the story of a study we, we've done at the Lula Foundation, working on CDKL5 deficiency disorder, where we've launched a first of its kind of observational study, because it is in collaborations with seven different pharma companies, and six of these are public. So you can imagine, it is complicated to set up this type of study. Um, it is an observational study to learn about outcome measures from patients and to learn about natural history in preparation for clinical trials in CDKL5 deficiency. And when we started and we proposed to these companies to do just one observational study, but everybody together so it could meet the needs of everybody, uh, we couldn't find any precedent. We asked around, is there any white paper for how to do this? And the feedback that we got is, no, you're going to have to do it and write the white paper. And that's what we did. We figured out how to do it, and now we have to write it. The, the issue we clashed with was that companies regarded observational studies, natural history studies, as competitive. Uh, they, wanted, they think that the design that they use can give them an edge over the other companies. Certainly, the data is an advantage. And they were planning to do multiple observational studies if we hadn't uh, proposed to run one and manage to do it. So it took us about two years from the first conversation with the companies until signing and starting the study, which is now ongoing. And there were several challenges. Obviously, there are the technical challenges of designing a single study for everybody's needs. But what was important that we learned is that it was very important that the coordinating party was neutral so that they could all trust them. And so it had to be us. It had to be the nonprofit foundation. It couldn't be one of the pharma companies and then expect the others to partner with them. But at the foundation, we only have one and a half employees on, on the half. So that was really hard to do. And, and the second thing we learned is that it was really important, the quality of the study. It had to be pharma quality so that the companies wouldn't decide to rather go and do it alone. And we would end up in multiple observational studies. So we had to become a lot more professionalized than we were before. And we had to hire clinical development, clinical operations. We got the FDA to review the study. We hired a CRO. So I think that for patient registries and any effort to collect real-world data, I think it's important that the patient community leads the process and owns the process. But it also requires a level of professionality that might not be accessible to all of the patient communities or foundations. And, and that's why I think it's really important to have what I call bilingual organizations that know the reality of patient advocacy and know the reality of pharma research and can facilitate this as part of an ecosystem. So ideally have the patient community partner with someone that knows how to build the studies of registries and then plug pharma into that. This is something that could not have happened without the leadership from the foundation. Thanks for that. And and yeah, it's certainly been a, a, an honor to to partner with the Lulu Foundation um, around our our the CDKL5 registry and yes. exploring through through GUIDs that you mentioned, global unique identifiers earlier in our conversation, how we can 
um, link together the data from, from that study you just mentioned with the registry to really maximize the overall value to the community. And um, ensure continuity. We want that to be a living resource, so absolutely. So you've, uh, in addition to your uh, role at Lulu Foundation, um, you've also recently started a, a new company with, with quite a novel approach to drug <laughs> development. But I, I would love to hear, how are you now thinking about real-world data in, in this context as CEO of an early-stage company that will develop new treatments? Yeah, well, I come from the rare disease space, so working closely with the patient community is at the core. My co-founder also comes from the space, and I think that shapes a lot how we're building Singularity in many ways. Um, to tell you a bit about Singularity, this is an early-stage biotech company developing drugs that change cell behavior, so not a single piece, but really the functional state of the cell. And that's because what we want to be able to do is to address complex common diseases where there is not a single cause, like genetic diseases, but instead is the result of different cells not behaving the right way. So the bigger picture of what we're building, it's a move in medicine from just know you have a disease to a more dynamic way of understanding and treating disease. Again, from a picture to a movie, like we do a bit in diabetes today by monitoring sugar levels and knowing if the patient's well controlled or not, what type of food is causing uh, the problems with the sugar. And by looking at the diseases and treatments more as dynamic, up and down, it actually becomes critical to be able to correlate those levels with patient outcomes and therefore with real-world evidence. Even for clinical trials, it is not going to be enough to collect a just-no primary endpoint. I think we're likely going to be looking into modification of disease outcomes along a continuum. So at Singularity, we'll want to revisit the current outcome measures that are used for our target indications and see if we need to work at developing new outcome measures that can map better into the real-world data. And obviously, all of those efforts we'll do in partnership with the patient community. It's still early for us to talk about the disease areas that we'll work in, but I'm certain that we'll be working with the community as soon as we can nominate these diseases. But the bigger picture is that I believe medicine will move from putting more weight on trial results to putting more weight on real-world data. And not only I believe this happen, this will happen, I'm also building a company that will help make this happen because we're modulating cell dysfunction, not just single targets. And that will require a much more dynamic view of disease. And that goes beyond what can be measured at a doctor visit. So I think that's the direction of medicine and the direction we're building towards more and more real-world data and evidence driving value and more patient voice. Well, Anna, Wow, this has been amazing and so jam-packed <laughs> with insights. Thank you so much for, for sharing your experience with our listeners today. Well, thank you for the podcast and for the work you do at Pulse. It really makes it a lot easier so that we don't have to build all the capacities in-house and can partner with people like you. Wonderful. Thanks so much.